Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for tuning in today. Maybe you've just had the radio on all day, which is what I prefer. It just comes to be my turn. And I'm awfully looking forward to the show today. Patrick Albanese is going to be joining me in just a minute to get things started on our Mondays. And I just uh, was seeing that in Minneapolis last night, 92-year-old Tony Bennett sang to a sold-out house. That was... uh, Amazing, at 92, he's still out crooning, as they say. I was sitting in a coffee shop in Dublin one day, probably about 15 years ago, sitting there by myself, looking out the window, and Tony Bennett walked right by the window by himself, wasn't walking with a guard or a crew or anybody, just all alone. I thought, huh, that's Tony Bennett. I have to go say hi. So I jumped up, paid for my meal, caught up with Mr. Bennett, just extended that warm hand of Christian friendship and said, Hey, Mr. Bennett, nice to meet you. I'm a big fan of your music. And we had a nice chat. We talked for about five minutes, and he moved on. And just kind of one of those little moments where you go, Ah, that was kind of fun. Kind of glad I do stuff like that because uh, those moments don't happen that often in life. But really fun to meet Tony Bennett, big star, great voice. All right, let's, uh, let's just take a little break, and then we come back. My friend and colleague from that great uh, state of Iowa will be with me, Patrick Albanese. Be right back. I'm Neil Stavum, manager of Faith Radio. Last month marked the end of our fiscal year. And thanks to many generous friends of this ministry, we finished strong and full of hope for more impact in the months ahead. Now, to those of you who sacrifice, partner, and stand with us financially, thank you. The legacy of Faith Radio goes back over 70 years, and it's been the consistent support of listeners like you who have enabled us to keep the relevant Bible preaching and family-focused teaching going out every day. And over the years, we've seen amazing growth for Faith Radio. AM and FM Signal sharing the gospel in nine markets now across the upper Midwest and in Hartford. Thousands listening online to our web stream or on the Faith Radio app. And hundreds tuning into podcasts of compelling conversations with Carmen LeBurge, Susie Larson, and Bill Arnold. All of this growing impact has happened because of your support. And together we can see greater days ahead with your prayer and financial investment. If you're not yet part of the team, join us today with a gift at MyFaithRadio.com. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. All right, it is Monday, and you know I love Mondays, and for no specific reason other than it's the start of a work week, and we get back to doing what God has called us to do, and this is what God has called me to do this day. And my first guest on the show is, of course, my friend and colleague from prestigious West Des Moines, Patrick J. Albanese. Patrick, welcome to the show. Kicking off a Monday without working. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I don't know about you, but I always seem to need more than one chance to make a good first impression. Yeah. What was that saying? You never get a second chance to make a first impression, which I would have no friends if that were true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think you're kind of an acquired taste? 
You know, I I I think um, you know I've I've had uh, as, as you know I, I dabbled in selling cars for a while. Um, I never used the phrase I sold cars because that's the last thing that ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> Sales rarely happen, but I, I I did work at you know at one place and I just had a boss. He says I, he goes I don't get your personality and how would you like to be told that I don't oh. get your personality? People don't get you. Yeah. You go, I, I, I don't know. And at that point in time, I'm in my extremely late, 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 late forties. And I go, I, how is it that I've actually had, you know, friends and family that are actually, you know, still, I'm still on speaking terms with it. People don't get me. Well, there's a lot of listeners shaking their heads right now going, yep, I don't get them either. I know. <laughs> but don't take that personally. No, no. Well, not only do I not take it personally, I don't have room for all of them. You know, I just don't. I'm, yeah. I'm a busy guy. Yeah, so I know you are. I know. I got kids. Yeah. So one of your uh, one of your principles, which I love, which maybe you'll explain uh, better than I can, is the old uh, taking a page out of the book of common sense and having it stuck in the book of rules or laws. Yeah. Isn't it? it I always find it interesting that, you know, things that we used to do that we just say, well, of course, you know, uh, of, of course, if you... Um, you know, work for a, a restaurant, you're polite to the customers. You know, we didn't as you used to have to be trained, but that is something you, you needed to do. And, but we end up with these, you know, with these books of rules and it's, and unfortunately it's usually the few that make life miserable for the many. Oop, that was my peanut butter spoon, by the way, that just fell down. That's okay. I am not going to apologize for that. And, I I'm not, and I can't edit the show right now because we're live. So go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I understand. That's why I did it. My dog's been hanging out and I thought, finally, he likes me. And I realized <laughs> I got a jar of peanut butter. <laughs> but, you know, we, 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 we have to make rules for everything. And uh, unfortunately, we don't seem to trust people with their judgment uh, anymore. We, we don't we, we don't have this, you know, the common sense thing. I know that's an overused phrase, but uh, it's uh, yeah, I think even when you started your uh, company, uh, you probably over the years were like, well, now we, we we have these pages of rules in the rule book. You can't do this. You can't do that because somebody did a knucklehead thing. And mm -hmm. instead of just saying, hey, guys, watch it. Use your better judgment. Next thing you know, you got a book of rules. Right. It's like, right. We've got, you know, all these things you can't do or you got to do them a certain way. And that's why when you go into a restaurant, they say, how would you like a tasty, frosty, strawberry, kiwi um, fruit punch? To go with, yeah, yeah, you know, you just you got a book of rules. You have to say that, don't you? You right. can't just be a human being and approach me. Yeah, you sound like you once worked at TGI Fridays. I did. <laughs> I even, you know, you know that movie Office Space, yeah. where where uh, Jennifer Aniston gets the talk from the boss about her flair. Yeah, her flares. I got that. Got got the, that you got the flare talk. I got the flare talk. I did um, because uh, I I would just to entertain guests with, you're going to find this amazing, witty banter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that service, wasn't good enough. People, it's because yeah. people didn't get you. Yeah, and, and it's because people didn't get me. Servicing the customer and because uh, so I didn't wear a bunch of, I even had, I had um, awarded, I'd been awarded pins from the president of the company. Uh, personally, actually, one of them was awarded to me personally and I kept those in a drawer at home. I said, those are nice. Um, but it, you know, the boss was like, you need more flair. You're not wearing funny hats and you don't have suspenders. I go, well, <laughs> pants are staying up just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
but uh, I, I would I would I would say to him, and I was trying not to be disrespectful, and inadvertently was somewhat disrespectful. I said, "Have you checked my sales? They they are higher than everybody else's, and that's not just alphabetically. They're mm-hmm. really there." And I said, "Because." Instead of worrying about, you know, what kind of suspenders I'm wearing or a button that says something witty, I am quickly servicing customers instead of wasting time talking about my button says, lose weight now, ask me how, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, I was, I, I was looking at, uh, listening to some old radio clips from shows from way back when I was a kid. And there was a radio station here in town that got played a lot. And it was uh, not Faith Radio. I'm, it's not the station I'm referring to right now. It's another station. And I was yeah. listening to some old shows. And it was amazing what used to pass for conversation back then. And it's interesting how we have shifted from delighting in good conversation on the radio to what do you got for me? What do you got for me? What do you got for me? And yeah. this guy, I was listening to this. The show is probably 35 years old, and he was—he spent four minutes talking about the chicken Kiev he had for dinner last night, and it was interesting. It's the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> Today that's we go, we, it's the hey, Russians. Yeah, that's how we do radio now, It's just say, like, what are we mad about? Yeah. Uh, I, I know I've talked about this before, and I don't necessarily read Slate magazine, but it was the beginning of like 2016 or something like that. It was uh, the New Year's Day edition, and it was pointed out to me. Uh, they had a calendar of the previous year and everything from each individual day of the year that you were supposed to be outraged about on that particular day or, you know, whatever was the the hot thing of the day. And what was surprising is as you're going over 365 items, you're struggling to remember a couple of them. You're like, oh, that's right. That thing happened with that person that, you know, uh, returned a chicken sandwich and it turned into a big riot, you know. And I was supposed to be outraged and saying something's got to be done and I've forgotten it and moved on to the next uh, adrenaline rush, I guess. I'm not sure what the outrage does, but I think it pushes buttons that uh, almost in that endorphin release um, that happens from exercise or from illegal drugs in Mm -hmm. in a way that uh, people can get addicted to. Like, you know, I'm wondering if there is something that feels good about being outraged? Does it feel like you're making a difference by being outraged? You know, I don't know. It's not good for anyone's well-being, that's for sure. Um, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are times where you have to be outraged, you know, um, when they were trying to put an eight-foot sidewalk in front of my house. That was the time to be <laughs> outraged. Yeah. I need that. I yeah. have to I shovel that? That's not going to happen. Right. So now, I need, to, I need to drift back to the uh, uh, rules and the common sense discussion we had, because starting August 1st here in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, you cannot have a cell phone up to your head while you're driving. So you have to be on a wireless, speakerless, Bluetooth, whatever, and you can't have your phone up anymore And because that's dangerous. But I'm not sure talking on the phone is what's so dangerous. Well, it doesn't seem to have accomplished texting unless people text with their earlobes. And I don't think they do, do they? No, they don't. So isn't the real problem, the distracted driving that we often hear about is from somebody texting or trying to be on Facebook. So it, it seems like a, I, I don't know, I don't want to say it's a meaningless gesture. I'm sure it's it's well-intentioned, but uh, I don't see that many people with a phone up to their ear anyway. I, I don't know, you know, 
my uh, my good friend Craig, when we were kids, long before cell phones, uh, when his mother would have to drive his places because we were young, you know, she'd be putting, I'm not kidding, curlers in her hair and doing her makeup <laughs> driving. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was fine. <laughs> that was fine. Now, granted, she's had 142 parking lot incidents. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's, does this, does this really, I think it was a Thomas Sowell uh, who had this, you know, thing about, you know, any new law or new government program or whatever it would be, would be, you know, a, you know, will it work? <laughs> Great question. You know, will it have the intended effect? And especially if it involved money, you know, who pays for it? How much does it cost? And is, is, you know, is it really just a, a revenue generator? You know, is it really about saving lives? You know, my town had the red light cameras and uh, they generated for my little town. I think they said it was one article in the paper about $700,000 a year, which they could use for stuff like putting in a very wide sidewalk in front of my house. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, people did not like them. And uh, then a report came out that said uh, we've had an increase in rear end collisions in our town. So the, far from being a safe alternative, people are slamming on the brakes and getting into more collisions than they were prior. So uh, the red light cameras went. The, the, the city made the the, the the right choice saying this didn't work. But we really missed the money. <laughs> we really missed the money. Mm-hmm. Let me take a break. Patrick Albanese is my guest. And we will uh, be back in about 90 seconds. Welcome back to the show. I'm always glad to talk to my friend and colleague, Patrick Albanese from Des Moines, the great city of uh, West Des Moines in the great state of Iowa. Uh, I love saying that. I don't know why. It flows. And everybody knows where you live. Everybody that listens to the show knows exactly where you live. I'm going to start giving your address out. I technically don't live in West Des Moines. (laughs) (laughs) You live in Clive, don't you? But isn't that part of West Des Moines? How did we get started on prestigious West Des Moines? It's it's prestigious West Des Moines and, and, and prestigious Clive. You'd have to say Clive, which is what I tell my kids. You know, my, my kids have a, somehow or another adopted my sense of humor. Uh, and so I don't know how that happened. But uh, when people ask them where they live, they say Clive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like, I like. It's worked out really well. Uh, yeah, it's uh, – you were just talking about something that was very interesting about how did we get started on that. Um when I was in Chicago last week talking to my sister who lives in a very nice suburb and then my cousin came out and we sat down to have a nice chat. My little town uh, has property taxes and my sister's property taxes granted for a larger house and my cousin's property taxes are six to seven times higher. Mm. Now, I, so what does it make? What makes it prestigious? It's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, that was a stunner. And my uh, my stepsister lives out in a town called Lake Zurich, and she pays almost ten times what I pay in property taxes. Wow, that's a lot. For, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. All right, I want to talk about um, truth. And when when we hear stories on the news, uh, we were chatting about this earlier. I think it's worth discussing again is when you hear a story and I, I don't want to 
specifically mention what I'm talking about, but just when you hear something, shouldn't our first response to be, huh, I wonder if that's true? Yeah. We almost we almost want things to be true, it seems, because, again, it seems to go to that outrage um, meter. I mean, we, we, we hear somebody says, uh, did you hear what so-and-so said? And instead of our first question being, what, did they really say that? You know, is it out of context? We run with it. And, you know, people eat a lot of crow these days, which is going to be an endangered species. Mm-hmm. Eh, we'll probably, we're not going to run out. But you're right. We don't ask that. We don't say, well, is it true? You know, did it really happen the way, you know, they say it happened? Because how many stories, how many times are we going to bite that, that hook where a story comes out and it could be about a, a shooting, it could be about any incident that happens, and we get all outraged, and within 24 hours to 48 hours, more information comes out. We're like, we're all Emily Latella. We're all, never mind. Yeah. No? Was that Gilda Radner's character? Gilda Radner, yes. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. It's, it's, we don't hesitate. Mm-hmm. Well, what's so bad about hesitating? Just a wee tad. And isn't part of it the way the news business is structured where, because everything is monetized, every website is trying to get the first click to get you yeah. to read the new breaking news that you're never going to believe this, this just in. And whether or not the story has been uh, tr- uh, proven to be true or not, they at least get your click or they get you to stay watching TV. But now, now here's the thing that I find curious about that. So um, let's look at you know, some of the cable networks over the last couple of years. They've been dealing with, you know, we're absolutely positive there was collusion with Russia. And then the Mueller thing comes out and there's no collusion. And these people watch the shows day after day after day, get baited with another story, says, we got the smoking gun. We got the sm- Oh, but we don't have the smoking gun. But we still trust them. Why? <laughs> I mean, isn't it amazing if you had gone to, uh, you know, if somebody continually told you stuff that wasn't true after a while, you'd say, I think I'm just going to take that one with a grain of salt. But instead, people tune back in and say, give me the next tidbit. So, yeah, they do it because it works. I'm just a, a believer that, you know, it's they do these things because it's obviously effective and they don't seem to care if their credibility is shattered that, oops, we were wrong about that one, but tune in tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We got another one. Yeah. And then people keep tuning in. So we're rewarding them no matter what. I remember seeing Dr. Larry Sabato um, on the news after the 2016 election, and he just said, I, I have to just come clean and say the polls and all the punditry was all wrong, including myself. Yeah, um, that was pretty obvious, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you're a master of the obvious at that point, but you're you're just taking responsibility. You're saying this it, we we all said it was going to be a certain way, and it turns out it wasn't. It it turned out, and um, you know, I a thing I sometimes talk with uh, friends of mine about, and one of them posts pretty regularly. He's always almost got this negative challenge. I challenge you to you know defend something that Trump did or or whatever, and. You know, the fact that nobody will take him up on the challenge, he says, see, you guys have no arguments. Like, well, you're not exactly friendly to people who <laughs> accept your challenge and say, here's some facts. You get kind of mean. So all of your friends have learned, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And I think that's what happened with the polls. People said, gosh, they run all these stories. You can't possibly support this guy. Uh, so when people got polled, they didn't tell the truth. Mm-hmm. 
They just said, uh, who am I voting for? You know, I, maybe, maybe Hillary. I don't know. But they were, af- they were afraid to tell people the truth because of the, 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 the pushback they would sometimes get. And so then they just waited till they got into the voting booth and said, here's my person. Mm-hmm. That does happen a lot. Yeah. Well, one of the uh, signs of the week for me last week was this house that said, had a sign that said, in our house, we believe black lives matter. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Love is love. Kindness is everything. That's the yard sign. And then on their door, they've got a sign that says, no soliciting. <laughs> Don't bother us. <laughs> well, I think that's, we were, uh, a friend of mine got married uh, last summer We when we did an Airbnb. My, my wife found this, you know, pretty reasonable deal for Los Angeles prices. And they had a big sign, you know, uh, open door policy, uh, no walls, and everybody's welcome, and, uh, you know, basically the same sign that you're talking about. And I kind of wanted to knock on the door and say, you know, the, um, this garage that you've converted into this really nice apartment, why are you charging me 600 bucks a week for this thing? <laughs> I mean, why don't you just let a family or two live in there? You have space. Yeah. But, um, it, uh, kind of, they had sort of a gated home and it all ended there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you couldn't even get to their sign because it was behind a locked gate. <laughs> yeah, well, we all we all have mixed messages from time to time, and we're all hypocrites from time to time. Um, um, and you know, you sent me that that uh, that little meme that said we cannot bring a nail clipper on a plane, but we should let seven thousand foreigners walk across our borders with unchecked b- backpacks. I mean, that's just a you know a common sense sort of thing. We we do want to protect our citizens. We want to help the refugees. We want to help people seeking asylum. We want to take care of them. We want to be loving and Christ-like. Um, it's kind of an organizational issue, isn't it? It is. And, and you know, it's one of the, a bigger issue for me too, is I want to make sure that the kids that are being brought really belong to the adults that are with them, that it's not a trafficking thing. I, I was, I was telling, um, some family back in Chicago, they were going to come out to Iowa for the Drake Relays. Drake's university out here, and the Drake Relays are a big deal. I said, you look it up. The Drake Relays are one of the largest trafficking of minors uh, event in the country, in the world. It's a huge thing. You go, what? It's a, a relay, a couple of relay races. But we're centrally located. All the highways come here. People come in from all around the world. And you don't like to think about stuff like that happening in your backyard, but it does. And they're coming from somewhere. And unfortunately, the bad people in the world would take advantage of an open border and bring kids like that across and deal in a trafficking thing. And is it so bad to want to say, hang on, let's just check, make sure that everybody is who they say they are. Everybody's, you know, they're really seeking asylum and that, you know, somebody's not trafficking children. It's a big issue, I think. Yeah. Patrick, always nice to chat. I hope you have a great rest of the week and thanks for doing the show. Yeah, thank you. And uh, by the way, we didn't get to talk about the Green New Deal, but I looked up part of it and I just want to point this out. They want to ban airplanes and I'm just here to say that's not going to fly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Patrick Albanese has been my guest. We'll take a short break and be back with lots more in just a minute.
the show. Awfully glad to be talking to Laura Jones today. She had a world-shattering experience uh, in 2004. Uh, she lost her husband and two children in a head-on collision. She survived herself. And I don't think anyone would be surprised to think that she secretly wanted death for herself because when your whole world collapses like that, you've got to be so desperately seeking for answers and wondering where God is in all of this. She graduated from Kansas State University. She has got a degree in accounting and from Midwestern Theological Seminary with a master's in religious education. So we are delighted uh, to welcome her to the show. Laura, hi. Hello. It's so good to be with you this afternoon. And it's so good to to know you and get to know you a little bit. And you've had uh, kind of one of those experiences that not a lot of people can say they've had. Yes, that's true. And I'm really glad that not a lot of people can say I that know. they've had it. I know. Can you kind of give us a brief, briefly share that story? My husband was a pastor in northeastern Oklahoma, and our family lived there together. And we were planning a trip just home for the holidays, back to our, the, our hometown where we grew up. So we picked the kids up from school the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and everybody was excited because usually we celebrated Christmas with one side of the family or the other when we went home for Thanksgiving. So we were going home for the holiday for, you know, gift giving and all of those things, and everybody was just really excited. And we got about halfway home, and we stopped and had some supper with my husband's little brother and his family just enjoying the evening and then we got back on the road and the in the meantime while we were in the restaurant the temperature had started dropping it had been raining and now it started snowing so about 45 minutes into the second half of our trip the pickup coming from the other way hit black ice that neither driver expected and slid directly into our path. And uh, that night, I was the only one in my vehicle to survive. And you lost your husband, J.L., and your daughter, Janessa, and son, Jaden. That's right. Um, it's just uh, so sad, uh, Laura, and I appreciate um, you doing the show. I know you've chronicled your story in a book, Song of a Wounded Heart, and I know you've laid all this out, but I'm sure even speaking about it is very, very difficult. For many years, the Lord has used this story in a, in a mighty way. Really, I have been speaking in churches and leading women's retreats and conferences across the United States. I think... I think I can say that it gets a little bit easier to tell the story, but it never changes the ache in my heart. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Total sense. Yeah, that's that's there forever, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. Now, you probably had questions for God at that point. Yeah, I did. Now, can you maybe tell us what some of those questions were or tell me why it's okay to even question God at all? Well, first of all, one of those questions was, why did I survive? Why didn't you let me go too? Because mm-hmm. I, I didn't want 
Oh, boy, especially after I saw pictures of the van and knew that it wasn't reasonable that I was alive. <sighs> then it, it just was so obvious that God kept me alive on purpose, and that frustrated me. I, I just, my head would get lost in where they were in the presence of the Lord, and I couldn't be there with them left back here to try to figure out what to do, and I didn't know what to do. And I also, I, I had a really strong calling to ministering with Jay. He was the pastor. I was his wife, but I considered, I considered myself in the ministry too, not just that I was his wife. And so I was really struggling with what's my purpose now. I thought this was my, my calling. This is what you wanted me to do. And then you took him away. And so all of those kinds of questions that were going through my mind, why, why is it okay to ask them? I think that our relationship with God is much like our relationship with a good parent, a good and kind parent that loves us. And I certainly let my children ask questions. So when you think of your time of healing and you, did you go through some physical pain yourself? I mean, were you uh, roughed up? Did you break any bones or have any uh, physical problems yourself? I had a concussion that caused me some issues for a while uh, because I was knocked out in the accident and I had one broken rib. Just blows my mind. I was in the front seat of uh, passenger side of the van. I did not have a airbag. Hmm. And I mean, it just blows my mind. I had lots of bruising, of course. Mm-hmm. Seatbelt caused the broken rib and lots of bruising. And my at my feet was one of those, you turn the clock back to 2004, um, I think they were two quart coolers that you just filled with water or with lemonade or whatever mm-hmm. and got coolers, you know, I had one of those sitting in between my legs and that messed up my leg pretty good, but Ouch. it didn't break. Yeah. It, it just blows my mind. Nothing broke. Mm-hmm. It... <laughs> so Laura, how, how do you have the faith that in, in the midst of this horribly difficult, unthinkable accident because you just lost your family. Yeah. So how do we have faith in this moment? I think it comes first from the fact that I, I had believed in God since I was a little girl Mm -hmm. and I had been following him and I had trusted him and I knew that he had walked me through, through some bad stuff already, nothing anywhere near what I was facing now, but I knew he had been faithful. And then somebody, a friend of mine actually asked me not very long after the accident, he said, are you still going to keep believing in this God? And I looked at him and I thought, wow, that's how this happens. That's, this is why people walk away from God because 
he didn't do what mm-hmm. it seems like he should have. And then in almost immediately, I the second thought right on the heels of that, it, I felt fear just go from the top of my head to the tip of my toes. And I thought, oh, my goodness, if I choose to believe that he doesn't exist, then that means I am saying that there's no life after this one. There's no God to help me through this. That would mean my children are just dead. How? How? No. It's my very lifeline Mm -hmm. to continue to believe in God. There's no way I'm walking away from him now. So it it was a pretty monumental question and choice for me. Yeah. Laura, I go back to what you said, though, that you knew God from a very early age, and it sounds like you've been a student of his word for your life. So it seems to me that that is probably one of the greatest advantages you would have for navigating through this horrific uh, event. Yes. The fact that my parents taught me about him and I watched them not just study the Bible, but live the Bible out. And then even though I certainly had not always been faithful to him, didn't always make the right choices, didn't always please him, but I, I learned (laughs) through life that he was trustworthy and that he would forgive and accept me back. And, and I knew I knew he was the only way I was going to survive without him and without the hope of life after this one. I don't think I would have chosen mm-hmm. to survive. Yeah. It's just difficult enough as it was. Mm-hmm. Did the other driver lose uh, his or her life as well? No, he did not. Okay. He did not. Um, so when we know in our heart of hearts that God is good all the time, even when we can't see it, um, how do you how do you return to that piece of knowledge and wisdom after your experience? Well, one of the ways that God made His presence very evident to me happened in the van before I even understood that we'd been in an accident. I opened my eyes, I tried to take a breath, I couldn't breathe and I had no idea why. I'm looking around the van and slowly trying to absorb that we've been in an accident and that we're hurt. It was like my head just wouldn't work correctly. Mm -hmm. And right then, a song came to my mind. Just, I knew it was God because it didn't make sense for a song to come to my mind in the middle of all of that. And the, there was a phrase that kept playing over and over again in my head. And it said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It doesn't take very much reading of the scripture before you realize that every time God appeared to someone, or every time an angel appeared to someone, they started their conversation with that person with do not be afraid. And I recognized that and I, I was terrified. It was absolutely terrified, Mm -hmm. but I knew it was God. So then, um, they started to take, they put me in a 
backboard. And they started to take me out of the van. And at that point, the second part of the song, which was familiar to me, I'd heard it on the radio before, but I didn't know it. So I couldn't just go to the next phrase of the song by myself. So the next phrase of the song began to play in my head, and it said, the voice of truth says, this is for my glory. Hmm. I thought to myself at that point, I thought, okay, then we're going to be okay. You're here, and we're going to be okay. You're going to fix this. Wow, that's that's God showing up in a miraculous way in the time of yes. uh, great horror and uncertainty and fear. Yes. That's powerful. All right, Laura, let me take a little break. Um, Laura Jones is my guest, and we're chatting about her amazing experience. Uh, No one would want to go through that, and she's brave enough to share what God is doing in her life through all of the tragedy. We'll take a short break and be back in just a minute. Jones is my guest. She's had an amazing experience, and she's written a book about it called Song of a Wounded Heart, Regaining Hope and Trust After Personal Tragedy, the incredible true life story of a woman who lost everything. And if you just joined the conversation, uh, she was in a car accident, lost her husband and two children, and we're chatting about the experience and what God, how God has navigated her through that, and there are seven scriptures that you say you rely upon when you're facing difficult circumstances. Can we talk about those? Well, we can certainly talk about some of them. That'd be awesome. (laughs) One of the very first ones that um, the Lord opened my eyes to, um, because of the head injury I had, I had to take some medication that made my my vision blurry because I kept spinning from from the concussion. So they gave me this medication. So I was having difficulty reading the Bible. I picked it up and I was trying to get the words to focus. And my sister-in-law was nearby and she was watching me and she, she said, can I read to you? And I said, sure. So she picked up my Bible and she just flipped through the pages and she chose a page with a verse on it that I had underlined before. And it says, there will be a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. I clung to that. I should, I'm quoting this from my memory at the second, but the phrase right before that says, um, the Lord will give you the bread, even if the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and affliction, there will be a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. So I just... I cried out to God, I have no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. I need you to show me the way. I need there to be a voice in my head that says, this is the way, walk in it. So that was one of the, the very most important ones. That's amazing. I also discovered that all of the characters in the Bible just seemed to lift off the page. As all of a sudden, as I read just a familiar story to me, I would see myself there, like 
in one of the gospels, Jesus is um, moving about from town to town and helping people. And he walks into a town as a funeral procession is happening. And there is a widow who is following the, the casket, to use our terminology, of her only son. And it says that Jesus' heart went out to her. And I thought, okay, he, his heart is going out to me too because I too am burying my only son and my only daughter. And in that story, Jesus walks up to the woman and he says to her, don't cry. And I thought, okay, now nah, there's no, why'd you do that? Because of course she's going to cry. Mm-hmm. And then as you keep reading the story, he brings her son back to life. And I thought, why did you not do that for me? Why you could have, it's completely within your power to raise one, at least of my children back to life. And you didn't. Why? And as I, as I sat there, just thinking and praying, talking to God, he reminded me of, of, of another passage in first Thessalonians four, where he talks about there will come a day when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And I thought, you have already done that. You have already raised my son and my daughter. They are with you and not with me, but you have already raised them from the dead and my husband. And someday, someday you will give them back to me just like you gave back that son to that widow. And I can't wait for that day. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a great day. <laughs> uh, so that's how the Bible came back to life yeah. for me. Yeah. In a, in a whole new way, really. Those are. And then the way I studied it before. Yeah, those are great, powerful verses. I just, uh, I love those. So those are great. Those are great dots to connect here. Um, so how do we do this healing thing? How does it work? Because there's. I would imagine just a lot, a lot of healing that needs to go on and these wounds are deep and how do we transition them from really, really deep wounds to kind of the feeling of joy again? Well, one thing about it is we really want healing for a heart to mean no more pain and that just doesn't happen. Not in a lot of things in life, I think, but certainly not with the loss of a child. You don't ever get to the point where you don't hurt anymore. So I ask God a lot, like, what's it going to look like to find healing to this? Because you can't just go on or find a new life or whatever. Some of the things that people say. And little by little, he taught me that healing for a wounded heart is when it works again. Because see, at first, it can only feel pain. That's the only emotion it has. It comes with, in lots of forms, anger and fear and bitterness and all those things that go along with it, but it's all painful. And as it heals, your heart is able to embrace some joy and some hope, those positive feelings also. To me, um, feelings are a little bit like a um, pendulum. 
if you picture them that way, you know, a pendulum will swing equally in both directions. And if you look at negative emotions being on one side and positive emotions being on the other, if you try to stop the pain, what happens when you stick your hand in a pendulum? To stop it going one way, mm -hmm. it stops going the other way. And that's what most of us do. We try to stop the pain in some form, run away from it, medicate it, whatever. We try to stop the pain. And when we do that, that pendulum won't swing the other way either. And we're left, which is Yeah, that's so true. Um, Laura, I, I'd love for you to share how m music was so important that night. And then it still remains to be a pretty important piece of um, um, your healing process. Would you talk about that? Sure. Of course. It started with the importance of listening to God sing that song right in the middle of the accident. And as the night progressed and, and when the chaplain came to the foot of my bed and told me that my son and my husband were already gone and they didn't think my daughter would live through the night, that song concluded, the chorus did, and that chorus says, out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. God was just whispering to me through music, don't stop believing choose to keep believing. And I think that he knew, used music because music has always been one of those ways that um, helped me express my emotions, helped me worship, helped me hear God. Um, so he knew my language, so he spoke my language. I, and that's true for everybody. It doesn't have to be music. Whatever it is that will speak to you, whether that's through nature or through friends, whatever method God knows will get through, he'll use it for you. Mm -hmm. So he, by all means, he continues to use music in my life. And if I wake up with a song in my head, I listen to it. Like, okay, I'm going to go get all the words and listen to it because I feel like um, it often is a word from God for me. Mm -hmm. So Laura, do you have encouragement for people who might be facing what they feel is their impossible moment? Absolutely. Oh, good. There are two things I would say. One is it's a choice whether or not you're going to believe. And the other would be open your Bible, keep reading, keep talking to God, express all, all everything, take those questions and all those emotions to God and to the Bible and let him show you how he interacts with people there so that you know he'll interact with you like that too. Mm -hmm. Because your experience is, is not the normal experience, not, not a lot of people have gone through what you've gone through and you've made yourself available um, with this book, uh, Song of a Wounded Heart, to let people know your story. If there's uh, someone out that is in that similar situation, is there any way people can connect with you online? Um, is there... Absolutely. What, do you have yes. a website? I do. It's laurajones.org, and you need to spell my name, L-O-R-A, 
laurajones.org. You can find me on Facebook also. I have a Laura Jones Ministry page there. You can find me on Twitter, Laura Jones Ministries. Um, But any of those places, feel free to message me and I will respond. Mm -hmm. And your book, Song of a Wounded Heart, what, what are your hopes for people that get their hands on a copy? I want that book to lead you to God's book. I want my story, for God to use my story to speak hope into your story. That's what I want. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good ambition. Because <laughs> we <laughs> we all need to be pointed to to Jesus, and and I love books that do that. So thank you for uh, your your bravery to be processing this with people and to be going around and telling people your story, because I can only imagine it's not easy. It's not easy. It takes lots of emotion to do so, but it sure matters to me when I watch that it helps somebody else. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you so much for doing the show. It's been a delight meeting you. Thank you, and pleasure to meet you as well. Thank you for what you do for the Lord. Thank you so much. Laura Jones has been my guest, and her book, Um, is called Song of a Wounded Heart, Regaining Hope and Trust After Personal Tragedy, The Incredible True Life Story of a Woman Who Lost Everything. We'll take a little break, and we'll be back with lots more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.